This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Authors, the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Lance. My co-host today is C.R. Rice. And our amazing guest today is Lainey Cameron. Woo! Hi, I am so excited. I am glad you're so excited. What's funny is our producer is going to put some sort of laugh track over that. (laughs) I was like, we should have cheering. And he's like, I can add that. And I was like, it gets weird. Okay, let's talk about what we're drinking. So Another guest whose name escapes me right at this moment in time, and they can kill me, go ahead and call me out, um, told me about this mead, and it's called Viking Blood. And he said to get the black bottle of Viking Blood. I did that. Who the hell told me this now? Anyway, I did it. Um, Thank you for telling me it. I forget who did. But anyway, we're trying that tonight. um, It is really sweet. Let me start there. Does it taste like honey? It's made from honey, right? Yes. So it says um, in very tiny print. Why would you put tiny print when drunk people have to do this? The world people don't read the bottle. Right. Yeah. So it says the world's oldest fermented beverage made from honey has been popular drink from Europe to Australia. Apparently not going in this direction. So I don't know how I got it in the U.S. Dating back to long before the Viking times. One of the earliest references to fermented honey can be found in the Hindus of India's holy books, which date back 4,000 years and possibly even earlier. Um, So apparently this is the oldest recipe between Nordic countries from 1520 and the Archbishop um, August Magnus. Anyway, this is way too much work to read this entire thing on the back, but if you guys want to try it, it, is it American meat? or English meat? Um, it is imported from B United International Oxford, Connecticut. <laughs> Wait, it says produced and bottled at, where's bullion? It doesn't say a country. B-I-L-L-U-N-D. Let's look at it. BK? BK. I have no idea. Why don't you have a city and state on here? No, a state. I don't know where this is. There's lots of letters that I don't recognize too. It's fine. It sounds really fun. I mean, I grew up, um, meat is kind of still a thing in the UK. It's not super popular, but I grew up in Scotland and I know like Dickens festivals and things still have meat and yeah, it's really sweet. Yeah. Did you find out where it is, CR? No, I missed you spelling it. B-I-L-L-U-N-D. Sure. Sounds dark. It sounds real. Denmark. 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 Huh. So this oh, is important. those little horses are so cute. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is imported from Denmark, everyone. We're we're international today. Lainey's <laughs> in Mexico, so we're super international. <laughs> oh my God. CR, what are you drinking? <laughs> I'm being super lazy tonight. I'm just doing Tito's and cranberry. Well, that is a very basic drink for this evening. <laughs> right? It's, it's well, festive. I will say it's I red. have that fancy key lime stuff that I like put on the top of it. So that's fancy. Okay. I take away it's your fancy. basic thing and it's fancy. <laughs> okay, Lainey, what are you drinking? I am drinking, like get it on camera, a Ooh. fresh grapefruit juice with a little bit of soda water and mezcal, which I'm happy to talk about. This particular one is called Cuatrocientos Conejos, which means 400 rabbits. It's got a picture of a bunny rabbit on it. It's a very popular mezcal here in Mexico. I think you can get this one in the US at BevMo and other places now. And um, it makes a great refreshing drink and it looks pretty because it's pink. It looks very pretty. (laughs) Oh, this meat is very strong. (laughs) Woo, woo. Okay. You should just line up little shots. Just like take all of the shots and just line it up. And every time you want to drink, you just throw one back. I I really should. If if I didn't think I'd make a gigantic mess, I'd find shot glasses. But (laughs) so Viking blood, if you want to get fucked up. Um, (laughs) This is coming from somebody who drinks on a podcast all the time. (laughs) Oh, go figure. Cheers. Cheers. Woo. Okay. Cheers. Oh, my God. Oh, now we all got to do 
You know, I, I think it. this We're podcast was pretty much designed for me because I'm a Scot, so we kind of like our drinks. I have been known to bring drinks to other podcasts and live events where it wasn't really a drinking thing and I'm just sneaking it off camera. So, Oh, I'm, I am very proud to know you now. Because <laughs> we've I'm never done like, that, right? Yeah, no, all the time, <laughs> all the time. I just actually come up with events that then add itself to drinking um, at work they were they one of the girls was like you're coming back I'm so excited I'm like I'm gonna require wine she actually bought me wine I was surprised and then I was like did you bring an opener and she's like are you drinking that now and I'm like I guess not like, you should fine. have one stashed in your desk you know like the old cop movies where they pull out their drawer and they just have like the bottle of whiskey with the two glasses every time I should do that. That's, you know, I work in HR. I'm definitely going to set a good example. Okay. So, <laughs> Lini, let's talk about your writing in your book. So, sure. when did your, uh, so I went, we cyber stalked you on Amazon and you, because yeah, that's what we do with our guests. And let's talk about, um, first of all, the name of your book is The Exit Strategy. I just realized it's sitting on that. Yes. There you go. It looks like this. It's got a, beautiful couple of coffee cups on the cover and that's deliberate because it's actually about two women uh one is a venture capitalist she invests in companies for a living and she's about to close the deal of her career she's right on the first page ready to walk into the meeting and she realizes that the woman she's bet everything on basically her whole future is her husband's mistress rock on oh my god this sounds epic. <laughs> there you go so epic and she hasn't even confronted the husband yet. He's not yet come home. And so she has to meet the mistress before she's even talked to the husband and she can't get out of working with her. Wow, wow. This, that I'm too spiteful a, for all that. Yeah, this, this, <laughs> I was gonna say, Chelsea, but down, they're taken out. <laughs> um, so is this the first book you published? It is. It is. I'm working on my second one right now, but this was my debut novel, my, my very first. It took me five years, and I'm actually astounded because it was kind of hard to find a publisher. It's a little bit out of the mainstream. You know, this isn't actually a story about, like, the two women ripping each other to shreds, which would have been the easier story to write. There's a lot of pressure and tension at the beginning of the book, but ultimately it's actually more of a girl power, grown-up story. It's about how the two women do get over it and do become friends and do work out how to work together. And as I was taking it out to bigger publishers, they were like, no, 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 no. You need to have the two women rip each other apart or go after the guy and rip the guy apart. And I was like, but that's not the book I want to write. I want to write about a book about smart women who are better than that shit. And so I ended up taking it out with a small publisher without an agent. I never found an agent. And the book went on to become an Amazon number one bestseller and will win 12 awards, including just a couple of weeks ago, it won book of the year from the independent author network, which just blows my mind that you can go from being told, yeah, there's no market for your book to winning stuff with the same novel without it changing. It just kind of like tells you something about the way the publishing industry works. Oh, you don't need to tell us because we are <laughs> publishers also. So we do understand this because... There are so many great stories that don't fit into normal publisher boxes that they're like, yeah, I don't want that. And I'm like, no, but you do. You really do. You, you definitely want that. And that's an amazing success story. So very well done with that. But um, since this was your first, it took you five years. Why? Let's, let's do that. Why, why, because why the book? Let's start with why the book and what made you kind of decide to get into writing, you know? Yeah, I worked for 20 years in tech. So this book, a lot of the background is inspired by my own background in technology. I was a head of marketing for really big billion dollar companies and then really small startups. I went from everything from 200,000 employee company to 20 employee companies where I was in charge of all the marketing and I had just finished my last job about five years ago and I was burned out. I mean, I had been doing this for 20 years. You're constantly on, you're dealing with just incredible sexism in tech still. And a lot of that makes its way into the book. Um, and I just was so burned and I had this idea. It wasn't a very fleshed out idea. I had this idea in my head of a wife who picks up the phone and calls the mistress and the mistress doesn't know that she's a mistress. She's actually engaged to the guy and thinks she's about to get married. And oh, wow. I just said, like, what if those two women couldn't walk away from that situation? 
What if they were forced to keep meeting each other again and again and again, and they couldn't just hang up the phone and never talk again? And so I then from there, I kind of came up with an idea of, okay, what would force two people to never be able to walk away? And I'm like, well, what if one invested in the other's company? And I think that came to me because that's my background of being in board meetings with venture capitalists and stuff. And I was like, oh, that would be really bad because neither of them can afford to look bad publicly in front of their board, in front of everybody else. So they're going to have to pretend it's all okay while wishing the other person dead. And so I thought, wow, wouldn't that make for a cool story? So I gave myself like six months. I said, I'm going to take six months before I go back to work. I was lucky enough to have a little bit of savings. And I was like, I'm going to take six months, see if I even know how to write the end of the story, because I had no idea how it ended at that point. And so I gave myself six months, I wrote it. And then funnily, like shortly after that, it won its first award as an unpublished book. And I thought to myself, huh, if you don't finish this, if you just go back to work in tech, you're never going to finish this book. I used to work like 80 plus hour, crazy, crazy schedule. I traveled all the time. I was like, I'm never going to finish this. I'm going to be like 85 years old going, I had an idea for a book once and I'll never write the damn thing. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to finish it. I'm going to get it done. I did not know that it would take five years. Thank God. Cause I would never have embarked on it if I'd realized that it was that long a journey, but I had to learn the whole craft of storytelling right? How do you get emotion on the page? How do you keep someone turning those pages? How do you keep, keep the reader engaged? All of that, like, I don't come from a writing background. I used to write like advertising copy, but that's not at all the same thing as, you know, keeping someone engaged for 300 plus pages. And so I had to learn all of that. And it took a while. It really did. It took, you know, 15 revisions before the book was ready to see the world. Oh, wow. 15 more minutes. Well, luckily you have a background in marketing because that's going to help book sales. So that's pretty awesome. Um, so when, when did you finish that one? I finished that one in, huh, when did I think I finished it or when did they actually finish it? I thought I'd finished it at least, at least three times before it was truly ready. I thought I'd finished it and I queried agents and I got a little bit of feedback around character. Then I worked with a developmental editor and rewrote the book another three times. And eventually it was actually ready. And that's when I took it out to another round of agents and small publishers. And that would have been in 2019. And I signed with a small publisher and from there it went called the Wild Rose Press. And from there it went fairly fast. I signed in like December, 2019 and it came out in mid 2020. And we did some further revisions and some copy editing and everything on it. Um, and so the thing that was interesting and you know fun, depending on your definition of fun is that it came out right in the middle of the first few months of the pandemic. And so it was really interesting to your point to work out, how am I gonna engage with readers online? How am I gonna make everything virtual? Luckily, we weren't all totally zoomed out back then. It was in the first months where people were still like, human connection, I wanna meet real people even if it's on Zoom. And so that was nice. It actually played to my favor and I really appreciated being part of the community of debut authors. It was almost like we were battle scarred, 250 of us that were traditionally published and came out that same first year of the pandemic. And we were all dealing with the same thing. And so we really became a community. We had a Facebook group and we, we kind of supported each other through that weird, odd year where we were all trying to work out like, how do you bring out a book in the middle of like a news cycle where you don't really wanna be the person raising your hand going, hey, I know, you know, the hospitals are filling and it's a horrible world, but would you like to read my book? And so it was a really interesting moment to try and bring out a book, but it was so cool to be part of that community of authors. And we all worked out how to do that, how to get our work into the world anyway. And the cool thing is people love escapism, right? It was actually a year that of all years people needed to escape. No, it's true. We, I was talking to somebody last night about that is that you know, as much as people go, oh, I shouldn't owe this, people are having tragedy, they need that. They need the escape from their life into another world because it's not, it wasn't, it's still not pleasant out there for a lot of people and they have to have that. So that is exciting. You've started on book two. So you took, you, have you officially retired? Did you officially retire with this? I have. I have, like, and I'm lucky that, well, it's related to the I'm in Mexico thing. So I'm, I'm lucky that between my hubby and I, we can make it work financially so long as we're not living in an expensive place, right? So when we started, when I started, we were living in San Francisco, renting an apartment in San Francisco. So once I decided I was gonna stick with the book, we realized he could do his job online. He does consulting and development for computer and tech companies. And so we realized why would we stay in one place or pay expensive rent in the Bay Area? And so we've been nomads, basically moving around the world, living in different locations for the full five years since I started, since I became an author. Oh, that's got to be so much fun. That's got to be so exciting. 
It is. How did you talk your husband into that? Because I've been trying to do that. (laughs) You know, he was, he was as excited as me. I think sometimes you don't realize something's possible until someone else says, what if, what if we did it? And then you kind of go, I guess we could do that. Why not? And so we tried different things that didn't work for us though. The first six months we lived in an RV. We, uh, we sold like my Hyundai for like $9,000 and bought a $9,000, 27 foot RV. And we thought, oh, it's great. We'll travel around and stay in different RV parks. And that turned out to be, I mean, a great bonding experience for us as a couple because we didn't kill each other, but a terrible way to work. Two people working in an RV is a horrible thing because you don't have any noise separation. And I don't, don't know about you guys, but I can't write when someone's talking, like if someone's on the phone or there's noise. And so it's amazing that we actually still liked each other by the end of that, because, you know, one person stands up to go to the bathroom in an RV and the entire thing rocks. So you're trying to work and like the RV's rocking back and forth and I'm shouting like, stop rocking our house. It was uh, challenging to say the least. So we tried that and we realized that was not our thing at all. And then five months into it, the transmission blew on the RV and we took it as a sign from the universe that we're done here. And we actually uh, parked, this is a funny story, parked the RV at Las Vegas airport and went online and said, where can we go with our frequent flyer miles today? Turns out you could park an RV at Las Vegas airport. It was like $5 a day. And we literally went, where will our miles take us? And the answer was Mexico and it was Mazatlan. And so we went off for almost a month to Mazatlan, kind of abandoned this RV in the parking lot. And when we came back, we were determined. We were like, okay, yes, we liked being in an apartment with doors that close where the thing doesn't move around. That's the right answer for us. And so ever since then, we've done rentals and we always look for a rental with two rooms, either two floors or separated by a good, decent sized door that will keep it quiet. And that's worked for us ever since. We've rented and stayed in different locations around the world. I think that's brilliant. So I was talking to my boyfriend about doing the RV life. Like we seriously talked about it. We seriously looked at things. And then I said, you know what we need to do? We need to rent an RV for a little while and go do this and then see if that's something we want to do. Cause I think having a little RV where you have a bed and like, and I'm talking about little teeny trailer kind of airstreamy thing on the back where you can go and go visit a few cities and you have a place and all that is cute. But I think if you're like, I'm going to live the RV life, watch a bunch of videos and then put yourself in those videos and go, how would I feel about showering with the back of my van open and, you know, putting a, you know, I watched this girl the other day, she's like showering in my van conversion van. And she put, you know, she opened the back doors of her van and she put the shower curtain and it swings out and she's, and I'm like, um, what do you do when it's like, below i don't know 70 degrees outside like this seems like the whole time zr is like no no i like my showers i like to relax i like to take a bath but if you think i'm bad Corey takes like four showers a day okay and they're not short showers my husband would lose his mind if he had to hold up a shower curtain to shower you would have or to the shower the water was, every day. The water doesn't go oh, more no. much past four showers. <laughs> yeah. Or the shower is three foot by three foot, maybe when you're right. in there. And so uh-uh. it was and funny. Then the whole process of like emptying the toilet off the side of the RV into the dump station. That ain't so fun either. Yeah. No, so- I can't even get him to go camping. <laughs> like, there's no way. Erica, you're so Uh -uh. smart because I say the same thing to people who are planning to stay in a location for a long time. Like I actually see it here in the town I'm in San Miguel. People come and they stay one week in a, you know, a hotel in Centro and then they buy a house literally after one week. And I get it. They fell in love with the city. It's a beautiful little town. It's cobblestones. It's gorgeous. But like, I always say wherever you are in the world, for God's sakes, go rent and experience that exact location before you go commit at that level of buying a place. Because the only way to feel a neighborhood or an RV is to actually go do it, right? You can't, you can't just walk down the street and go, oh, that's a pretty house. I'll buy it. I'll be happy here. You have no idea that there's a barking dog next door that's going to keep you up all frigging night. Yeah, there's just so many things that you don't experience. Or the church bells, that's another one here. People don't realize that we have church bells like for hours on end. And we also have fireworks at five and 6 a.m. for about an hour to two hours on every holy feast day, which is a lot of days of the year if you're in a Catholic country. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because 
by the way, this sounds like a great story you can write, and I don't know if you're writing it, but you should note this down, is that um, being in HR, I work with people, and we have 11 different offices in all these countries, and people go like, I want to relocate to South Africa, and I'm like, do you? So let's start with, have you ever been to South Africa? Yeah, I went there on vacation once. Cool, 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 cool. Did you have a guide the entire time? Well, we had a driver. Okay, so new rule. If you want to go, why don't you go down there and go down there without a driver? And go. Listen, stay- I'm moving to Belize. It's just going to happen. <laughs> you guys and, have to just. And Belize is my whole point is like people don't. Um, think about this stuff and think about like what is the currency like what is the grocery stores like we like i just i I actually go in between florida and north carolina now i bought a house that's where i am right now in north carolina right we had a whole internet issue CR can tell you all about it It was quite a tragedy for a long time wasn't sure if i had to sell the house i just bought because the internet did not work out the way i wanted it to and people don't think about these little things that could end up being problems and like we actually had to trade um we traded in our cars for um all-wheel drive cars because our driveway has a 13 degree angle which doesn't sound like a lot but it's a lot in a car and it's gravel so you have to you can't be like i'm gonna drive up my little Prius up this road. That's not happening. Things that are not happening is you driving your Prius up this thing. Wi-Fi. So you're telling me I got to bring my Jeep. Yeah. Well, actually for Belize, you really need to look at the Wi-Fi. So um, places that are coastal and places that are islands, especially in fact, this applies to the whole of Australia, have shitty Wi-Fi. And so you have to really look at the Wi-Fi in the place you're going. I mean, we're really lucky here because we actually were able to get fiber and we actually have four different Wi-Fi networks in this house because at any time, two to three will go down. So having four means one works, but it's ridiculous, right? It's so silly to have four Wi-Fi's, but you really need to look at that because um, we sometimes will not go to a location because we'll realize that the whole city has terrible Wi-Fi and it's not like the place or the apartment. It's like the entire city for whatever reason has just terrible signal. And if you work online, which is my hub, my hubby does, he's doing online programming and he's doing app, app development online and he's charging by the hour, you know, three hours of Wi-Fi done means three hours of no income. And so it's kind of a big deal when your Wi-Fi doesn't work. And so, yeah, there's a fabulous site that we use. If you're ever looking at a place, now you're going to go, um, CR is going to go check on Belize here. It's called nomadlist.com, as in nomadic, nomadlist.com. And they actually rate locations for like cost. What's the, what's the price of a cappuccino? What's the cost of a co-working center? How good is the Wi-Fi? How friendly are they? Are they okay with foreigners? They rate all of this. Are they good with women travelers? They rate all this different stuff so you can get a sense of different locations compared to each other. And that's often where we start when we're trying to understand like, is the Wi-Fi going to be terrible? And are we, are we going to regret our particular location? I think that's brilliant, but that sounds like such a story. So I love how we get off topic on this podcast. I was about to say, I don't remember what the last question was. I think I derailed us. I derailed us this time. It was my fault. I'm not shocked at all by that situation. But I will just tell you this Viking blood, to which, by the way, didn't even make a full one of our drinking with author's cups, which you'll get, um, is, wow, it is some potent ass shit. Oh, that would be why. Okay. alcohol by volume which doesn't seem like a lot but when you think it's like a beer kind of beverage and you're drinking it anyway i could take off my hoodie in a second so i'm gonna say you're looking a little flush you're i am so flushed right now i'm not i'm not even gonna lie and i ate a huge dinner before this and i'm thank you to whoever recommended the viking blood it's i'm gonna be totally fucked up by the end of this podcast so um, let's talk about your writing journey. So having been in marketing stuff and I, and I asked this, but I don't know that you had the idea and everything and taking a break. I think it's great, but what made you go, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write a book because if you hadn't really done that before, you know, I know a lot of people that have the brilliant idea to write a book, but you actually have to fucking write the books. Just with anybody listening, that's the part of, well, I'm going to go write a fucking book is you actually have to write a book. The what whole the thing. hell made a marketing executive in the technical field go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go write a book. Either certifiable insanity or being very naive, one or the other. <laughs> Could Supposedly. be a very nice mixture of both. The insanity yeah. making you just 
you know. And good old fashioned uh, stubbornness, because I think that's part of my Scottish genes that I don't like giving up on stuff to the level of like unhealthiness. And so when I said I was going to do it, I was going to dang well do it, even if it ended up taking me five years and 15 revisions. And, you know, I had no clue what I was getting myself into at the beginning. But luckily, I'm very stubborn, very Scottish, very stubborn. And so, you know, I think resiliency and the ability to take feedback, that's a good thing you learn in marketing. So if you do like advertising or copy or anything like that, you're always going to get feedback. You're never going to present your first draft of anything to a client or to a boss. And they're going to say like, oh, that's perfect. Go release that right now. You're always going to get, I don't like the color. I don't like the font. I don't like the way you said that. I don't think the positioning's quite right. And so the thing about learning to write is you need to get feedback and you need to listen to the feedback and you need to work out how to actually act on that feedback. And so I think that's really helpful coming from a marketing background where you're used to um, developing a thick skin and being able to take feedback without taking it super duper personally, which I think is a struggle for a lot of writers that, that when you critique their work, you feel like you're critiquing them and their essence and their value in the world. And so I think that's a huge benefit that enabled me to go through that learning curve is that kind of thick, thick skin and resiliency. Yeah, no, I think you have to have that. And I think it's interesting that you say that because um, doing, and it's completely true. I'm not a marketing guru of a, any stretch of the imagination like you are, but I've run marketing areas and stuff for smaller companies and, or I've had stuff, um, presented to me. And I used to, at, at a couple jobs, I was called the butcher because <laughs> I would take the red pen and I'd be like, like, we need to, we need to do that. I, I killed people on too, but, um, uh, it's really, uh, you nobody, know. <laughs> nobody gave you the hint that just switch from red someone gave me the hint when I was in my 20s they were like if you're ever marking something up for somebody else make it a green pen make it a blue pen any color but red there's something psychological about being marked up with a red pen but on that same note if somebody marks something in the red are you or are you not always going to remember that for the rest of your life oh yes you are going to take it seriously well, if it's written and in red see you made people mark- better, Erica. You you yeah. improved them. I, hello, I made people better. <laughs> but did. I think it's important. Um, and I think what you said is important, regardless actually of the field that you're in, is if you are touchy about everything that happens as an author and every word you write is a golden cloud to which unicorns want to lay their nappy poos and it sheds fucking glitter, you are never gonna be successful as a writer because every single writer I know, even some of the greatest writers I've gotten the opportunity on this podcast to, to talk to still fuck shit up all the time. They just do like that's, they mess it up, but they know they mess it up and they know that's what an editor's for. And that's what, you know, your beta readers are for is to go, Hey, this doesn't make any sense. Right. And you have to go, okay, did I intend that to be that way? Or is, is this legitimate feedback? But if you're like, no, it's my precious, then you're never going to get anywhere. Right. You know, you will never be successful as an author if everything is your precious, right? Oh, oh, Erica, you are so wise. Yes, you cannot be precious. You cannot be a sparkle pony as the Burning Man crew call it. Yeah, you gotta be a sparkle pony unicorn, right? You gotta be able to take that feedback. And the other thing you'll have learned as well is when you talk to successful writers who've had long careers, everybody's career goes up and down and up and down. No one takes off like a rocket and stays up there. It just doesn't work that way. And so I think going into it, knowing that and having the resiliency to go through the bad patches is really important. Well, and I think, you know, just I'm going to say this because as a publisher, too, and I can say that, but also working with authors and stuff, you have to write multiple books, whether it's a series or just multiple books. It's about volume. They literally talk. There's a statistic from um, and I'm not going to quote this correctly, but there's a statistic that came out on how many books an author has to write. And really, for most authors, payment for real payment starts at about six books and then at 20 you're in a comfortable backlist situation because you need people wherever they find you on their journey to go back to the beginning and buy all the books because they go oh my god this one was so great I need to buy the rest of the books that's how it works or they find your one standalone book and they go I need to read everything by this person because that's how we are as animals we tend to like go we like this thing. We should go buy it. 
But if an author thinks they're going to get a fault in our stars and it's going to come out and it's going to be a bestseller and everybody's going to fucking love it and then they're going to do a terrible movie based on it, um, then you, I hate that movie. Don't even get I fucking hate that movie but so much. I hate that movie. You know, I hate that movie so much. But um, if you think that's going to happen, you're going to lose at the game of writing. You're just going to lose. It's, it's kind of like if you think you're that sparkle unicorn princess you're going to lose at the game of writing. So I think it's brilliant that you went into this with that tenacity and ferocity that you were like, I'm going to do this. I know it's not going to be perfect. I'm going to get it out and I'm going to get it out right, which is totally kind of your background, which is amazing. So yeah, and I, I, I have to learn how to write faster is the next big challenge for me. Cause to your point on, you know, I, I look at writers who can bring out like two books a year or book a year or two books a year. And I'm not there yet. That's definitely not yet the pace that I'm at, but you know, it's a learning curve, right? You get better at it as you go. Yeah, I won't let CR tell you how many books she produces in a year. <laughs> oh, go on, tell me, make me sick, make me sick. Um, by the end of December, I'll have five more done. Wow. Yeah. So we have a writer. <laughs> we have a writer that's been on the podcast named Kenya Wright, and she does ten books a year. Wow. Yeah. It depends on what you're doing, though, because if you can lose yourself in one of the books, then you don't even realize it. But like, and and how many your word count and stuff like that, that that completely changes everything. No, it does. Okay, we have to take a break. We will be right back with Drinking with Authors. This is the voice of Drinking with Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is: Hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. break we um and i say commercial break because we have commercials <laughs> um <laughs> we were talking about um now you speeding up so you're on book two what is that looking like so far it's looking like the universe hates me this year <laughs> got it got it it's every time i settle down and i get really into revising something hits me sideways it's been just a little bit of a crazy year i ended up going back to california because my mom wanted to get into a flat house and i ended up spending three months packing boxes and moving her house for her instead of writing and then i settled down again just a few weeks um back in um i did great in october and then november i was settled and writing in vancouver and unfortunately my mom took a fall so i expressed back to california to help her out stayed there for another month so it's been a little bit of a challenging year in terms of like it feels like each time I settle down and I'm like yes I'm in a vibe I'm getting this done boom something hits me sideways but that's just the way of it sometimes and I've been super productive since Monday and it's Wednesday so hey we're gonna hope this time that I can sail through the rest of the year and keep at it well I hope so too I hope you also didn't just jink yourself by saying that out yeah you never say yeah. that you don't do that you go well you know what should happen you never well, know maybe it will maybe it won't yeah who knows there you we'll go. see We'll see. So what is this next book about? This next one is inspired from my own life as a digital nomad. So I wanted to write a character who was a digital nomad and she is an adventure travel Instagrammer who the kind of crazy person who travels around the world, throwing herself off cliffs and base jumping and all of that crazy stuff. And she has a dark past. And at the beginning of the book, she looks up and her childhood home is on the news and there is a worldwide woman hunt for her to find her. And so she is both in the media because she's actually a 2 million follower person on Instagram, but nobody knows that she actually used to be this other person. And so she's going to have some really tricky things to navigate on in that scenario. If you go dark, you just draw more attention to yourself. And so it's um, kind of a little bit suspensey, but um, still woman's fiction. Very, very cool. This is awesome. Where do you get your ideas from? That one came from me trying to come up with a story about a digital nomad. Cause so many people said to me like, why don't you write about that? That's such an interesting life. Why don't you write about it? And so I started thinking like, okay, well, what if I wrote about that? And then I was like, what scenario might happen where something interesting would happen to a digital nomad? And it started from an idea of her actually being on a cliff, setting up a video to record um, a scene that she's about to do where she's gonna jump and hang off the edge of the cliff and seeing someone commit a murder as she's setting up the video camera. 
And so I wrote out the whole kind of scenario of how this would look. And then I showed it to one of my writer friends who I, I trust implicitly. She read the whole thing of like my outline of what this would be. And she's like, you don't need a murder. This book is big enough without the murder. Just ditch the murder. No one needs to fall off a cliff at the beginning of the book. And so it's funny because the very idea it started with, which was seeing, some, seeing a murder is gone, but it's even more um, intense than the original book. So it's kind of interesting. You kind of work and work an idea and it ends up somewhere different than where it started. Just like my first book, The Exit Strategy, I started with this idea of a wife and a mistress and I never intended to write a feminist anthem of a book. I just said it in Silicon Valley because that's where I worked for 20 years. And then it just had a bunch of sexism in the book because that's what I dealt with when I worked in Silicon Valley. And then I had to kind of deal with the sexism in the book because I couldn't ignore it because it was there because that was just the setting. And so ultimately the two characters actually tackle the sexism and have to work out how to deal with this. And so it's been funny to me that like what it became, which is this incredibly feminist book that people call uplifting and girl power and all these things came more as an auxiliary kind of side effect of me just writing what I knew than that I deliberately set out to write that kind of book. It's kind of interesting. No, I think that's really interesting. I had that happen with a book I wrote under my pen name and it's called My Home on Whore Island. And it is what happens when you stop looking for Mr. Right and you start looking for Mr. Right now. And I put all these whore tips in this book and I wrote it more as a humorous from a woman's point of view if she was having fun in the world and wasn't being considered a slut, right? And I've gotten so many reviews about what a great feminist book this is and stuff. And I was like, that is not where I was going with this to begin with. But I can see how it ends up in that category. Well, I wasn't, you know, because you know, well, that's me. why I, read, I, like, I actually read some of this. <laughs> Look, that was what it was it's like I read it and then like I go through and I love reading reviews like I just I do it all the time and I was like that is definitely not what she was doing but like good for you good for you sir well, Madam. <laughs> see it. If, if she's owning her sexuality yeah I can totally see that yeah no totally well there's these whore tips she gives there's over a hundred of them in the book and people in the reviews quote the whore tips and they're about finding your identity and knowing yourself and knowing what you want. And it was more from, hey, as a female, look at this. And then I went, wow, that is a feminist book. And I didn't intend to write it like as a feminist book. And I think sometimes when you accidentally fall into doing something like that, it actually is a better book than if you're like, I'm going to write a feminist manifesto, you know, because <laughs> then you're trying to insert this thing versus having your experience, which was naturally an experience. And I totally understand that. Um, flow into the actual book and because it's real it communicates like that is a big difference if you pull from real life experiences even if it's a tiny nugget that you stick into your book it communicates better than if you are a thousand percent making it up but you know every writer I think that's true is that it, you if you imprint some of you in the book it makes a difference now Obviously, Stephen King doesn't go out and kill people, I don't think. Maybe we'll find that out later. <laughs> that but, we know of. Yeah. yeah. But I'm sure some of the characters and stuff are people in his life, people he relates to. That's what makes it really real. So right. that's and exciting. Then you can this combine next that a little bit with giving yourself permission to end the book other than maybe reality. Because in my earlier drafts, in fact, my editor who's amazing, Tiffany Yates Martin, she's a developmental editor, really challenged me on the ending. She's like, so did you end it that way because it was realistic or because it was what the reader wanted? And I was like, because it was realistic. She's like, try ending it in a way that you'd like to see the world. And I was like, ooh, I can do that. It's fiction. I can end things the end any way I want. And so the original ending wasn't nearly as uplifting as the actual ending in the final book because I was trying to stick too much to accurate reality of like, well, you know, the sexist pig always wins. So I can't completely like do it differently. And it took me a while to realize like, no, I can. I can end this dang thing any way I want. No, it's true. And I'll tell you though, sometimes the endings like you, what you're talking about are the, the, sometimes the better endings too. Like, you know, I think that's great. And if that flowed for the story, great. But as, you know, when you're writing, I think that's one of the things, and it's great, you have a great editor that knows your book and all of that stuff. But there are so many people out there that run into people that want to change like sort of the vision. And I think some stories simply don't have happy endings. I know a lot of people want happy endings on stories. And some of my stories have happy endings. I'm using quotation marks. <laughs> Um, but 
a lot of them do, you know, I think it's impressive when you go the route that messes with people, you know what I mean? Like that, that they're not expecting whatever, but of course there's that whole genre of readers that wants, you know, Fabio on the cover of a book and happy ending. I like ambivalent endings. I like endings Reach where Scott Westerfield, out, but not everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love Empire Strikes Back endings. I don't care. That's how I feel. Like I want the like cliffhanger. Something else could happen. This is kind of wrapped up, but there's something else out there. I'm a huge fan of Empire Strikes Back endings. I think a lot of people should do that. When I've, when I've been a beta reader of books and like, especially if it's book two and they end it and it's got a bow, I'm like, this is bullshit. Like, you need to change this ending because it shouldn't end with a bow on it. It should end with a dun, 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 and then whatever's <laughs> going to happen to draw the person into the next book. Do you ever think about doing series? I think about it. And it's certainly, you know, from a marketing perspective, it's the much smarter path, right? It's hard to sell a series of standalones. It's like every book has to make its own mark in the world. And so I think about it, I just haven't quite like had the idea for what has that series potential yet. Like I, I'm open to it. I just have to have that right idea that I feel has enough legs and neither of these first two books or even the one I kind of half fleshed out in the middle, but set aside had the legs to be a series. Um, but I'm, I'm open to it. I just have to have something that has the runway that makes sense as a series. So just, I'm throwing this out there because writers listen to this podcast a lot of people try to get it so the character has momentum, but the character doesn't have to have momentum. The place can have momentum or the business can have momentum because you don't always have to write about the same people. You can have them interwoven in a thing, but it's more of a place or an event or something like that, that I think a lot of people take for granted that they have to have these two characters or this one character carry forward well, right. you don't really, you, you can have the circumstances that that character's thrust in take them, or you can have, they're in a small town in Mexico and this is the small town right. and here are all the things that happen and it starts here and then it pivots here and then it goes here and it's all set around a small town my, in Mexico, my, you know? My, my publisher um, actually has a really interesting thing. This is not, not necessarily my space. It's in the romance space, which is primarily what they do. But they have a series, I think it's called either Deer Creek or Deer Valley, where they've come up with a town and multiple authors are writing fiction romance based in that same town. And so they've got like a map and a model of the town and obviously buildings and things cannot move around in the town. It is consistent in every book, but different authors create storylines in that same town and that same canon, which I think is fascinating to have a whole bunch of authors writing into the same geographic location. Well, there is a book, there's a series with um, Melinda Snodgrass and George R. R. Martin started a series. I think it's called the Ring series and it's a fantasy series, obviously with those two. Um, and they invite other authors to write in this world with them. And it's a world that, you know, similar thing. And I think that can be tons of fun, but it's, it's a way for you to cheaply get into a series, um, by picking a world, a city, a town, an event, a business. I think it's when you go, how do I get two characters to string through books? Like that can be the death of you. It's not that it's how do you create a world and then put people in it. And then of course the characters can intermix, but they don't have to, because, you know, I I'm reading, uh, I'm, I'm what I call pot committed. If you play poker, um, to a series that's on book like 30 now. And the lead character drives me nuts. She's insane. She's stupid. And I don't like her. I like all the ancillary characters and where they put the thing, but I don't need to hear about her anymore because 30 books later, there's not a lot you can do with this character, right? right? So I'm I'm into whatever happens around her, but I also feel like I've gone this far, so I have to finish. I felt that <laughs> way at about book 20 for the record. There's a limited growth arc, right? At some point, like how much further can one character go? Yeah, no, I actually thought about, do I want to specialize in writing fiction set in Silicon Valley, for example, because my first book is squarely set in tech startup world, Silicon Valley. And as I started, I actually had an idea for a second one and I fleshed it out a little and it just wasn't talking to me enough that I know how much goes into finishing a dang book. And I'm like, if I'm not excited enough about it, I'm not going to stick with it long enough. And so then I gave myself permission to write something completely different with this digital nomad character in her 20s, completely different. 
Um, but I, I do like that idea. I think there is definitely an opportunity, especially in contemporary fiction, to create a world, a universe, like you say. I'm sorry, you could have a global marketing company that different characters interact with just this marketing company and businesses. You could have so much intrigue throwing it out there. You can steal that if you want to go for <laughs> it. You. Because that's something that you have and you have a foundation for because you know it. And I think that that can be fantastic. So let's talk about editing for a moment, my friend, because you wrote this book and then eventually you gave it to an editor of some kind, correct? Yes, two editors, really. Well, I worked with a book coach for a while, which was more about honing the craft and going back and forth on certain scenes. But then I had, I had a developmental editor who I worked with, and then I had an editor at the final small publisher that I went with as well. So what is a book coach? Because that is literally the first time I've ever heard that term. First time ever. Um, yeah. A, a book coach is very similar to if you were training for like an athletic event. Let's say you were training for a triathlon and you had a coach. It's a very similar thing where... I did train for triathlon. So this is something I can kind of can relate to is you're doing sprints and you may be redoing the same work again and again to learn something in particular. So with a book coach, as opposed to an editor where you're hopefully going to finish the whole book and give it to the editor with a book coach, you might be going 10 pages at a time or a chapter at a time. And you might rework the same chapter five times in a row because you're trying to learn a particular skill. So it is very much more a coaching relationship. <coughs> versus an editing relationship. It's a little bit of the same skill as an editor, but it's also somewhat different in that it's a teaching environment. It's more like a one-on-one -on -one coach who's teaching you some of the craft skills. Does that make any sense? It totally makes sense. I've just literally never heard of that before. Okay. And I think that could be a great thing. I was actually just, um, I have somebody who's a writer that's emailing me and they're just starting out and they keep sending me the version of their story. And I, I ended up to some of our editors at the company and I was like I'm not quite sure what to tell this person at this point in time and they were like here is a list of books they should go read because it is a skill and some people are naturally more skilled at it than others and so I'm like here are books you should read I think the one lesson you could take away is even if you are a natural artist at writing you need to continue to hone your skill. You need to continue to get better at it. In the same breath, I was talking about this story. We were talking to somebody else and they had written, somebody had read their first book. And then by the third book, they're like, they're getting much better. And I'm like, God, I hope so. Because by book three, if they're not improving even a little bit, they need to stop writing. Like just seriously, like if they're, you know, you continue to get better, but if you think that this is not a skill set that you have to continue to educate yourself on, get information, you will lose every single time. So there's when some, you sit down good, and go there's ahead. A good, there's a good company called Author Accelerator that trains book coaches. And it's kind of neat because the challenge with book coaches is anyone can kind of hang up a shingle and say, I'm a book coach, right? So how do you know if they're any good? Are they actually going to be supportive? Are they going to tear your work apart? Like, it's really hard to know. So it is nice because you can go to someone who's like certified by Author Accelerator, which means they've taught them the methodology, not just to give feedback, but how to do it in a productive, helpful way that doesn't destroy you, which is pretty important. And so like, I think either getting references, if you're getting a book coach, don't just believe what someone says on their website, go talk to other people who've worked with them or looking for someone who's certified like that is probably a good idea because I feel about book coaches the same way I feel about local critique groups. They can either be fabulous and skyrocket your career, your craft, or they can destroy your confidence and make you want to quit. Like it can go the other way. <laughs> well, and it's, Again, I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago about this exact point because they had a hat leapt into a critique group and it was really, really good. And I always say authors beware of critique groups. First of all, anybody in that critique group, see if they've ever actually published anything ever and take a look at the reviews for what they've published. Because if they're self-published, which can be great, but if they're self-published and they have a bunch of reviews about how bad their grammar is or all this other stuff, keep that in mind. And I'm not being mean, but there are some people that just like to criticize in the world. Yes. Hence the internet and hence trolls. They yes. just want to criticize. And so they found a platform in which to criticize. And artists are some of the most easily dissuaded from their craft based on criticism people like most artists 
And so you have to find a, a group of people that goal of the critique group is to improve and make you better. And also, if you write action adventure, don't go to a romance critique group. They're right, not is, the right voice for you. Which is one of the challenges with geography-based critique groups, right? Where people join a critique group in their town is mm -hmm. you end up with people who are very different to you, who are writing different genres potentially, and it can work. But I found that a lot of people, and maybe because I seem to be on the other end of lifting writers up out of this trough after they're like about to give up. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This was just the wrong way to go. But like critique is not criticism. And people don't get that. Critique is not about criticizing. That's I think it all comes opposite. down to, <laughs> but I think that also comes down to the way people talk to you about it. So like, it's like, hey, you make everything red. That's just really stupid. Or you could be like, hey, maybe instead of red, we do some greens. We do some, I think it all comes from the person, like Erica said, right. that you're talking to. Because there are yeah. those people that just want to insult the crap out of everybody to make themselves yeah. feel better. And also like to go with your red example, hey, I noticed that you made all of the different things in that chapter red. Was that deliberate? Were you trying to do something particular there? Right. Because maybe that was totally deliberate and that was what they wanted to do. So like, rather than say, well, that was dumb, ask them the question, did you mean to do that? Was that, was, were you trying for something there? Yeah, and I tell people all the time, um, take advice from people who also read the genre that you're writing in. Because writing styles are very different. I write um, chick lit erotica, hmm? and humorous erotica, and I write horror stories, like graphic, people get grossed out horror stories. Those are my two genres, right? So it's not that I don't read other stuff a lot, but if you were to present a mystery book to me, I am not the perfect person to tell you if you've led and dropped these seeds correctly. Like I can take a stab at it, but I'm not your reader. Like I'm not somebody who reads this kind of stuff and or writes it. I also don't write sci-fi. I read sci-fi so I can tell you whether it's really hard sci-fi or if it's, you know, lighter sci-fi. But when you're talking to somebody, one of the first things you should do is also kind of an interview process with them. What is their thing? What do they like doing? What is their fun read? What do they write? Because if you, for instance, got in a, a, an author group and they were all sweet hometown romance authors, you're going to, it's not going to go as well for you if, if you write something outside of that genre. Right. So, and that's, feel free to that's why genre groups can really help. So I'm really involved with Women Fiction Writers Association, which is an association of people who write the genre that is called women's fiction. And if you find a critique partner through that kind of genre specific group, whether it's sci-fi writers of America or women's fiction writers or a romance organization, then you're gonna be dealing with people who are at least in your genre. And it's an easier way if you're part of one of those organizations to find people who are in your genre, right? Cause it can be hard if you're just dealing with local writers groups, there may only be one sci-fi writer. Like there may not be enough for you to get enough to get feedback. Huh, a moth, interesting. That's okay, <laughs> bugs, bugs. I've discovered a Japanese bug that looks a lot like a ladybug that they apparently <laughs> dropped all over North Carolina to kill aphids but they invade in November and there are literally thousands of them dead on my back porch right now because one, when one of them dies, they go into a breeding frenzy. And I have decided to include this in one of my horror stories. So oh, I'm, I love it. I'm, I've got, I got some fodder out my window, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I will but, say if you don't like cucarachas, cucarachas or uh, cockroaches, don't yeah. come live in Mexico. We have our share of cockroaches. Listen, I live in Florida. Have you ever seen a palmetto bug? It's just a fancy ass cockroach is what those <laughs> things are. And they are straight out of my nightmares. <laughs> and they're like this big and they fly. Or they get bigger. Like they do. They're huge. They're and they crawl bigger. under the doors. Like, oh, yeah. And now that we all grossed ourselves out in the process. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. I'm so happy for you, the journey that you've done with your book so far in your second book, I, you know, it's amazing how many right choices you've made in this process. Cause a lot of authors that we talk to have made, you know, it's sort of a trial by fire and you fall into a pit with spikes and then you get yourself out of the pit with spikes and then there's a dragon. And then like <laughs> you go through this very, and I'm always um, immensely um, have a lot of admiration for these authors 
that get through all these trials and situations and like, I'm going to write a book. Well, it took me five years to write a book. Well, if your next goal is to get faster, that's what generally you do. Like if you're running, what is the first thing you tell people who want to run is run, get faster at it, get better at it. Again and again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah, I mean, there's a role in, in triathlon, 10% role. So you can improve 10% at a time. So don't go run one mile and tomorrow you run two miles. And then the next day you run 10 miles. So all you're going to do is sprain everything in your body and make yourself hate it and never do it again. Right. So there's a theory that says gradual improvement. And I think it's the same with writing. If you expect to suddenly write a masterpiece starting from zero, you're going to be disappointed in your work and you're going to feel terrible about it. Right. 10% every time is much more achievable. So absolutely. With all these awards that you won, did you submit for them? How many of them did you submit for versus just happened? I did. No, I submitted for all of them. I kind of looked at which ones had categories that fit for my book. So they needed to have either like a contemporary fiction or a women's fiction category. Back to the point of like, don't put your book in the wrong box, right? Like if I'd submitted it to romance, it would have failed because it's not a romance, right? So I I looked for ones that had the kind of category I want. And I looked for ones that I could submit to without my publisher, because my publisher doesn't really do that for their authors. And so I needed to find ones that I, as the author, could submit to, which meant it tended to be small publisher awards or indie author awards versus kind of the big publisher ones. And I think I submitted, it's kind of crazy, I submitted to 15 thinking that I might win one or two. And being a debut author, my theory was you know, this book is not going to be a New York Times bestseller coming from a small digital only publisher, but I can build some credibility as an author so that people think that my work is quality. And when my next book and the one after that comes out, I at least am viewed as a quality author that they can view, you know, that they're not going to be disappointed in my work. And so it just kind of blew my mind that I won 12 out of 15, which by the end of that process, I was just like, I feel really bad because I did not intend to do that. wasn't the goal I thought I'd get one or two if I was really lucky but I I think I don't know the stars were shining or something I'm I'm really fortunate but I gotta tell you that you have a good book I mean there might be that I mean that's always a really good option yeah (laughs) that you you wrote a good book I mean that could be that That, could be in there we don't want to put that there but that that could be part of the cause uh, of you winning all you know, these there, awards. There could, be a re- there could be a reason that one of the characters in my book has imposter syndrome. The CEO <laughs> has a huge dose of imposter syndrome. And so, yeah, maybe there's some of that. But one thing I want to say is part of why I've been able to, I think, like you said, make smart choices along the way is because I did join Women's Fiction Writers Association and I had so much help from other authors in terms of guiding my path on what to go learn and what to do in what order. And so as I was starting out, I I wrote my first draft and then I tried to do a draft two and I was basically massacring it because I made a huge mistake. I read all the craft books. I think I read like 40 craft books. I I always tell people now, do not do that. It's a terrible idea. What it did is froze me in place because if you read all the craft books, it's like, well, you shouldn't have backstory and you shouldn't open with the weather and you shouldn't have too much internal dialogue and you shouldn't have this, you shouldn't have that. And basically you can just set your whole book on fire because you can't do anything if you listen to all those rules. And so I went to the, to the writers I knew through women's fiction writers and said, like, I don't know how to edit. I, I truly don't. I tried to go learn from these craft books and I'm killing my own book. I might as well just give up. I mean, it's going nowhere. And they were like, oh, let me tell you who you need to go take a class with Margie Lawson. You need to think about getting a book coach. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to scrap all of those books that you're now trying to read at once. And so like the advice of other authors has helped me every single step along the way, whether it was like, how do you query? What do I do when I've queried 140 agents and had 140 rejections? And like every single step, how do I take this book into the world? What do I do next? It was all guided by other authors helping me out. And so I always tell people like, find your community early on, right? Because those are the people who've been through it who are gonna give you that advice so that you can avoid their mistakes. No, I think that's very true. And when it comes to um, what you're saying, I think one of the key things, if, if an author takes nothing else, find an editor, talk to authors they've worked with, and have them read the first two chapters of your book and go, okay, here are the basics that you need. And if they're a good editor, they're going to give you the books to go learn. Like the number one book is like, woe is I which is a grammar book. Like if you do nothing else, go get a grammar book. Now you're in marketing. So grammar is not necessarily your thing, but um, that is one of the first mistakes authors make is grammar. Like number one way to kill something is grammar, right? 
The other thing I always tell authors to do is if you're going to write in a genre, one, write in a genre that you go and read a bunch of stories in that genre. They don't have to be great stories, but go read the stories in that genre you want to write because, and especially successful stories in that genre, because it'll give you an idea not to mimic, but how, because an author said this the other day to me, and it actually caused me to think about this for three days was um, Twilight. So I read Twilight only because a friend of mine bought me all four books. And to me, they are not well-written books. She gets a little bit better over time, but they're not well-written books. I'm not even getting the story points because some of the stuff I disagree with. But she wrote in a genre that wasn't very popular at the time. Whatever she did got a lot of success because of the way of writing it and stuff like that. And so there's something about what she did that you can learn from. Don't go rewrite Twilight, please, dear God. Please do not. No, don't. But there's something because she opened it up for a bunch of other authors after her to write similar vampire werewolf kind of supernatural young adult stories. Like she wasn't the only one that ever did it, but she was one of the most popular. And unlike um, E.L. James, you know, um, that was a marketing thing that managed to excel her into the where she was. Right. But this was, this got picked up, it got popular. It's something, and I went, you know, I never thought of it like that before. Again, I think that those are important points as an author, and it's really neat that you found these things to take away. And I think Book Coach, this is great. You just brought Book Coach to the podcast. So people listening, Book Coach, if you don't have one, if you don't know where else to go about what you're doing and you haven't found your people yet, but Long gone are the days, I say this all the time, of the writer in the mountain in a cabin with no electricity, typing away at the typewriter. It doesn't fucking work like that anymore. You know, you can't do that. You have to have a community of people around you. Yeah. And I, me, I have two thoughts. Yeah. I, I have two, <laughs> two thoughts based on what, like your example of Twilight. You know, part of, and reading in your genre, right? Part of it is understanding the reader expectations in your genre, right? So there are tropes, but tropes are there for a reason, right? Another word for tropes is reader expectations. And so, you know, if I tell people all this all the time, if you're going to write a murder mystery and nobody dies, the readers are going to be pissed off, right? Like there are expectations, right? People die in murder mysteries. There is blood in horror movies. There are insects, like there are certain horror books. There, there are, you know, in erotica, you better have some damn erotica. Like there are expectations of how these books are going to work and what the reader's going to get out of it. And I think, you know, that's what you get, right? You can see how it's written well, but also just understanding those expectations so you don't disappoint your reader because they do have those expectations of certain types of books. And at least if you're going to do something different, do it deliberately knowing what you're doing. And then the second thought, Twilight is a brilliant example of this, is like there's a reason a lot of the most innovative, interesting, rule-breaking, category-breaking books don't come out of the big publishers. They come out of the indie world. It's because sometimes you do just want to do something out of genre and there is a market for it. And you shouldn't listen when someone tells you that it doesn't fit exactly in the box that it's supposed to be in because The Martian, what heck box was The Martian in, right? But that was a book that was indie published originally. Like Twilight, I mean, there's so many great books that have broken the mold and broken the genre. And I think we put too much emphasis on telling writers that they must only write in a genre and it stifles that creativity. And some of these great books didn't fit in a particular genre particularly well. Well, and I mean, we're going to talk off podcast because that's the entire genesis of our publication companies. We're bringing the publishing apocalypse because of that reason is whatever your story is, there is a market for your story. I'm not saying you're that market. Like I know people that write in a fetish where you're eaten, like it's a fetish and the whole fetish is not like a cannibal you're eating, but you're like swallowed whole. I forget the name of this. There is a whole, I know, I know. First of all, how did this become a fetish? Who went, you know what I want tonight? I want somebody to swallow the entire body and survive. Okay, CR, we're not going down that path. (laughs) We're not opening that door. That door is going to remain firmly closed. Okay, but but I I have a question. What are you eaten by? Is this by another human or by a whale or by a space There's so many questions. No, it's by another person or you're uh, a werewolf that's eaten by a vampire. It's a, it's a whole, it's a, 
a subculture, but it's a subculture of a subculture, but it exists. And if you go on Tumblr, you'll find this subculture. And I found it because I was talking to some authors and about their stories. And they're like, yeah, I write this. And I've said the name and I've had way too much Viking blood to remember the name. But I was like, <laughs> what is that? And then they explained it to me. And I just sat there and they were waiting for me to react horribly or like CR did. No offense, but um, they were waiting for me to react. I just need some more details. I just I, need I'll, to know how this works. I'll get you more details, I promise, <laughs> just not on the podcast. And I was like, that's interesting. And so they write in this subculture. And I was like, have you ever thought about publishing, like really publishing your work? And they're like, nobody would want to read it. I'm like, obviously people do, because there's a whole subculture on some of these boards about this. Now, is that going to sell as much as A Fault in Our Stars? Probably no. Probably no. That's not going to sell as much. But that doesn't mean there isn't an audience for your work. And to think you have to cram your work into a tiny box to find an audience is not true. It comes down to how you communicate about your work and what it is. Because um, we have a book, for instance, from us as a publisher, where it's a male-male erotic romance in a high fantasy between an orc and a human. And it's one of the top sellers we've ever had because people go, what the fuck is that? Is That's what I'm saying. I would totally buy that dude's book because I'm just like, how does this work? Let's see this. Yes. And it's, but it's masterfully written because it does exactly that is it breaks all of like, what genre does that fall in? It's not just a genre, it's several. So anyway, I think what you're saying is true. Oh my goodness. We're about to go over time. Lenny, how do people find you? Not your address, but like on social media and stuff like that, please don't give your address out. I say that because that's happened to us. So yeah, I'm in San Miguel de Allende. It's a small town in Mexico in the mountains. No, <laughs> no, My- no, no, hard pass. That's not true. <laughs> uh, okay. LaneyCameron.com. That's L-A-I-N-E-Y Cameron.com. And you can find all kinds of information there. My, my Instagram, I love Instagram. I post frequently. I post my travel shots from around the world. I love sharing where I am and what, what is going on with my writing. And I have a whole other website for my podcast, which is bestofwomensfiction.com, which is a po- podcast where I interview some of the best women's fiction authors out there. And How they're very short interviews. How are you bringing this up in the last three <laughs> minutes of this podcast? What the uh, hell kind of shit? thrown off with the random RV trip and then the weird eating people fetish. Things got out of hand. Wow. wow. That's what happens when you start drinking. This is true. This is very true. <laughs> I appreciate all of this. Okay. And the name of your book, hold it up again for the camera. It is The Exit Strategy. And yeah. the podcast is the best of women's fiction.com. Best of women's fiction.com. That is amazing. That is thoroughly awesome. You've been so much fun to talk to. We can talk to you for hours. I can already tell. Okay. So, this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Eric Lance. My co-host today has been the amazing C.R. Rice. Our guest has been Lainey Cameron. And we will see you guys next time. Bye.